Hi family, my name is Mark and I'm one of the pastors here at Spark Church. Thank you for joining us today as we continue our series on the book of Ephesians. This has been an interesting time for us to say the least, finding our way through this new normal. Figuring out how to work has been one of those journeys. Like others, I am lucky and blessed enough to be able to work from home remotely. Sometimes my work group joins a video conference call and we share photos of our workspace from home. We dream of spaces like this, or this, or even this. But often, our work is done in bed, or from the couch, and most often from the kitchen table, where our other quote-unquote co-workers see how much fun we're having and decide to join us. Many of us have also experienced the dreaded, my coworker wants to see what I do all day moment too, during a meeting. Now here's my actual workspace. I call it the Omega Strike Force Command Center, which is located in the garage next to the lawnmower, the rakes, and some moving boxes. I put it together a couple years ago as it doubles as my workbench. And that giant screen you see there is not mine. It's a loner from work. It seems a little gloomy, but there's one thing that I get that my coworkers, and by that I mean my housemates, miss out on. And don't let them know this. When I pop open the garage door, I get to be inside and outside simultaneously. I am inside the house, but I am absolutely breathing fresh air, feeling the sun, and seeing the world go by. This is my view for about eight hours a day. I can watch my neighbors getting a bit of exercise, getting the kids out of the house, taking the dog for a walk, riding a bicycle down to the Bay Trail, squeezing in a quick stroll during a work call, or jumping in their car and heading off to work because they don't have the same privileges I do. The folks I see the most, though, are delivery persons. The ubiquitous white FedEx truck rumbling down the streets, the UPS wagon with its telltale beeping, the local postal worker hitting mailbox after mailbox, the Instacart driver scanning the houses for the right address number. I'm recognizing some of them as they come by the neighborhood so often. Sometimes they greet me with a wave and a smile, and sometimes they're all business and offer a stone-cold nod. What's common to all of them, they're all in a hurry. Carrying packages to eagerly waiting people is a no-nonsense job. But to catch us all up, we're discussing the book of Ephesians, a letter from the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus. In the first two chapters, Paul has been speaking of unity. Who are we to Jesus and one another? What does Jesus mean to us? In short, Paul's message is that Jesus stands above any power or dominion, both in the physical and the spiritual world, across space and time. And as we saw in Pastor Omer's sermon last week, that same Jesus has not only saved us from eternal death and reconciled us to God, but he's bonding us together as one community, one household of God. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12 says, In Christ and by the Spirit of God, you are being constructed into a temple, a dwelling place for God. Like timbers and stone, we are being joined together using Jesus as the cornerstone that sets the standard and built upon the work of the apostles and prophets. We stand on the shoulders of those who came before us. But you see, we're not just resting on Jesus. We're also carrying Jesus and his message of love and forgiveness wherever we go. Jesus is both anchored and mobile. And the apostle Paul anchored himself in Jesus, but he also carried Jesus wherever he went. Being a carrier in today's context isn't so great. The reason why we're all self-isolating and sheltering at home is because we don't want to be a carrier of disease to others. 
But this afternoon, let's just talk about carriers as those delivery people I mentioned earlier, those who are working so hard to provide people with what they need, as in being a bearer of good tidings, of great joy to all people. And here's Paul's message of chapter 3. For this reason, I, Paul, a personal prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of mystery hidden for ages in the God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over why I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Now, in most of the letter to the Ephesians, Paul has talked a lot about Jesus and you all, we in the Spirit, us in Christ, in our new identity. In chapter 3, however, Paul changes gear. He uses this portion to explain his motivations. I've been telling you about what you and what we have now been a part of, but why am I, Paul, doing this? By looking at Paul's perspective here, we can name four qualities that made him such an effective carrier of Christ and the good news. First, being a carrier has a personal cost. Today, being a carrier and delivering shipments, equipment, care packages, and groceries can be rewarding, but it's also fraught with risk. Finding the right location with a timetable to keep is stressful. Sometimes you engage with a less than satisfied customer. You're not exactly getting hazard pay for your work, and sometimes you're a target for theft. Now, I haven't even mentioned being exposed to so many people in the course of a day during a pandemic. The Apostle Paul's role as a carrier of Jesus and his good news is also difficult. I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, right off the bat, in the first verse of chapter 3, Paul identified himself as a prisoner for Christ Jesus. And yes, it seemed that Paul was literally in prison because of his ministry, and that he was composing this letter under those conditions. Throughout his ministry, Paul experienced hardship after hardship, traveling to unfamiliar places, ridicule and rejection by friends and enemies alike, beating and stonings by mobs, arrests due to sedition. And yet Paul continued, and he continued enthusiastically because of who he experienced hardship for, Jesus and for the people reading this letter. Next, being a carrier requires humility. As a delivery person, you have to set your ego aside because the job is to deliver the parcel safely and on time. Weather doesn't matter. As the Postal Service's unofficial motto says, neither snow nor rain nor heat nor gloom of night stays these couriers from the swift completion of their appointed rounds. That parcel that you carry is not yours, and it's not from you. 
but it is in your care from the moment you leave the warehouse to the moment that you drop it off at its destination. You are a steward of that parcel, and it needs to be delivered well. Paul sees himself as a steward of God's grace and of good news. And of this good news, Paul says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Here, Paul paints himself as the least of Jesus' family. But honestly, he has a little more self-confidence than that. I would say that in some cases, he sounds kind of full of himself. In another letter to another church community, Paul says, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, under the law, blameless. But despite this high view of himself, Paul also has humility. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. There's nothing wrong with knowing who you are and being proud of your background or what you accomplished. But in order for a carrier to deliver their parcel as intended, they have to sublimate their own ego. Because what is important is not them, but the parcel itself. That leads to our next point. A carrier has to appreciate the contents of his parcel. As a carrier, you can't be like Brad Pitt in the movie Seven screaming, What's in the box? No, you have to know what you're carrying. If you're delivering a phone charger, that's one thing. If you're transporting a heart for a heart transplant recipient, how you take care of that parcel is a matter of life and death. Even things that do seem mundane, like that phone carrier or charger, or a webcam, or a frying pan, or a load of groceries, or a care package from a grandparent, those really are important. That parcel can keep someone employed, someone fed, and someone feeling loved. What was Paul carrying to the people he encountered? A mystery whose revelation changed all of humanity. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. We followers of Jesus in the 21st century don't appreciate the magnitude of this. And of course we don't. We are 2,000 years removed from this revelation. Christianity has dominated, been dominated by non-Gentile voices, that is, Western European male voices, for the last 2,000 years. And pretty much everyone listening to the sound of my voice is not Jewish, but Gentile. So this revelation isn't much of a revelation to us. It's the experience that we have lived collectively for almost two millennia. It's like saying to someone, Darth Vader is Luke Skywalker's father. In 1980, the response would be, oh my gosh, he is? Well, that means that his greatest enemy is a part of his family. Oh, I have to sit down for this. In 1984, four years later, the response would be, yeah, that's crazy, huh? Yeah, I wonder how they'll address that in the next movie. 20 years from then, 2014, 30 years from then, 2014, the response would be, who's Darth Vader? Oh, look, Adele did a cover of Let It Go from Frozen, and she tweeted it to all of her fans. In the same way, the inclusion of Gentiles into God's promise is the norm for us. We don't think much about it. But put yourselves into the shoes and into the lives of followers of Jesus of the first century, who are now forced to wrestle with idea, this idea. Jesus as God 
made himself known to the Jews. His followers were primarily Jewish. He was an ethnic Jew, living out a Jewish faith, worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses. He taught using the Hebrew scriptures, elaborating and expounding upon them. He lived in a Jewish culture, which generally excluded Gentile influence as tainted or corrupting, and kept Gentile individuals at arm's length or avoided interactions with them altogether. And now you're telling me that Gentiles are not only part of this promise made to Abraham, but they're also equal to the Jewish members of this community? I have a problem with that. This mystery would change the entire community, how they thought, how they lived, how they interacted with one another and the world around them, and even how they worshiped God. Paul emphasizes the magnitude of this change by saying, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. And to me, this grace was given to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that the church, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. You want to talk about impact? According to Paul, God kept this universe-changing mystery hidden from everyone. No one who lived before Jesus from the beginning of recorded history knew the secret. No one in the spiritual world, the rulers and authorities of these heavenly places, knew this secret. Who did God reveal this mystery to? Christ's apostles and prophets by the Holy Spirit. These are not historical figures to these people. These are contemporaries of theirs. They are contemporaries of the Christians in Ephesus. And how was this? This was according to the eternal purpose that God has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. That, my friends, is the parcel, the package that Paul is carrying. This mysterious knowledge is not simply something that humanity would have eventually discovered. It's something that God meant to reveal in and only through Jesus. This mysterious knowledge changes our understanding of God in his entire universe. With it, Jesus doesn't reveal something for us to ponder. No. With this knowledge, Jesus initiates us into a whole new world, into a whole new way of living, into a whole new community. And all, all regardless of, of ethnicity, gender, class, or background, all are welcome to know it and to live it. Do we living today recognize the value of the parcel that we carry? We bear Christ and his message of inclusion to everyone we encounter. But how much do we really comprehend the weight of this? We know this mystery that has been held in secret for all of eternity, and we say, eh, I've known this my entire life. Or, yep, I'm a child of the promise. What's for dinner? The message has seemingly lost its power because the mystery has been revealed so long ago. But as we see in Paul, we cannot deliver this parcel to the people we meet unless we comprehend how powerful this message of inclusion really is. We can't show people Jesus if we ourselves take Jesus and his grace for granted. As for the final quality of Paul, the bringer of good tidings, a carrier of a parcel offers the recipient a choice. Okay, nowadays, a delivery person is not waiting for someone to answer the door. They have places to go. So they will just leave the parcel at the door and move on. But if the parcel is of high value, a big screen TV or a laptop or food or N95 masks, then that high value package cannot just be left at the door for anyone to take. No, 
the delivery person will require that someone physically receive the package and even sign for it or given, give a written authorization that the package has been received. Paul ends his portion of the letter with this. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul is closing out this section of the letter with a callback to how he began the section. I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, is suffering on your behalf so that you can receive this good news. Verse 13 is the matching book end of verse 1, and it creates a chiastic structure, a literary device in which Paul here states specific concepts, verses 1 to 5, makes his key point, verses 6 to 8, and then repeats those concepts in reverse order, verses 9 to 13. You Greek literaturers out there should really check this out. But for the rest of us, look at that last phrase, which is for your glory. That Greek word that is translated as glory, doxa, can also be translated as opinion or judgment. Now, far be it from me to correct the work of biblical translators over the decades, but to translate doxa as opinion or judgment instead of as glory is much more interesting. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you. And what I'm suffering for is your opinion. What I'm suffering for is your judgment. What I'm suffering for is your consideration. In spite of his personal plight, Paul is delivering this parcel filled with world-changing information, and he is offering it to the church at Ephesus to do with what they will. They can choose to accept it. They can choose to reject it. And their decision to accept or reject this mystery, which God has been planning since the beginning of time to reveal in exactly this way to exactly these people, their decision will have widespread consequences, not just for them, but for the community God is building around them. The decision is in their hands. And for us, living in Anno Domini 2020, the decision is in our hands too. We are meant to build this kingdom of God and to deliver Jesus and his message of love and inclusion to the world around us. But it will come at a personal cost. It will require us to see ourselves as God does. It will require us to develop a renewed appreciation and joy for the person of Jesus that we share with others. And it will mean that we offer the choice to receive the good news or return it to sender. And we do that with humility. So in summary, if you're a fan of the Broadway musical Evita, you can summarize this portion of Paul's message, chapter 3, like this. Don't cry for me, you Ephesians. The truth is I'm meant to go through this. God's plan was crafted all through existence. You're children of the promise. Don't keep your distance. Through this personal side, that is chapter 3, Paul emphasizes the wonder of what God has done and is doing in uniting humanity in Christ. And what exactly is the whole message, a message of Ephesians? In summary, you could say it's this. We were made for this. We live for this. God has a reason, reason for our lives. We're gonna shout it out without a doubt. We were born for this, built for God's purpose. Now, we've been discussing mystery for the last 20, 25 minutes, and we need to appreciate it in our own lives. Now, consider the mystery of the Lord's table. Communion, which is Latin for union with. This remembrance of Jesus, his teachings, his sacrifice, and his glory is a spiritual practice that brings us together and reveals God's purpose. Through this celebration, Jesus is present with the church. 
tying us together across racial and gender lines, cultural divides, political disagreements, even geographical separation. We might not be physically present with one another right now, and yet we're still together, one in Christ. The celebration not only ties us together, but ties us to those who have celebrated this revealed mystery in their homes and in their churches for the last 2,000 years. And it also ties us to those who will be celebrating this revealed mystery in their homes and in their churches for centuries to come. People who have not yet come to Jesus and people who have even yet to be born. Let us all come together. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All are welcome at this table.